Metaphysics Week continues on the Magnus Podcast with the great Turn Around. It's a total eclipse of the intellect. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your host, John Johnson. And what can I say? Sometimes I tape these very late at night and all we have left are bottom of the barrel puns. But welcome back to the Magnus Podcast, a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts, ransoming the captives of a broken college system by offering an alternative, something we call the Magnus Fellowship. Now about 500 fellows strong studying under the light of great texts with the biggest names in liberal learning, leading the courses as senior fellows. You can become a fellow today by visiting magnusinstitute.org. I want to thank you. We're getting through our great campaign, trying to raise some big money to continue offering what we do for free. And it's really only possible through your generosity. We really gambled on that starting up. Many criticized us and said, why aren't you charging for this stuff? It's so good. Why aren't you charging for it? And we say, well, we got to give freely what we freely were given. And so that's where you come in, loyal audience and fellows. Uh, your generosity has impressed us so far. We're trying to raise 50 grand. We're about halfway there, and that'll get us through 2022. And imagine that. I mean, there's many colleges out there, some of whom have even smaller student bodies than our entire fellowship but multi-million dollar endowments. Um, we're doing all this on a shoestring budget because we can. Help us raise $50,000, magnusinstitute.org. Make a painful one-time or recurring monthly donation. I promise it will be treasured and stewarded well. magnusinstitute.org to give. Tonight, today, whenever you're listening to this, uh, it's another great excerpt from Dr. David Arias's course on the metaphysics and we're getting into the great turnaround. So I'm going to give you a quotation here. In addition to studying the first principles and causes of all reality, it belongs to the wise man. That is to say, the metaphysician to study being insofar as it is. Uh, it's not a John Johnson original. You'll see who it is. Stick around. You're not going to want to miss it. Metaphysics Week continues on the Magnus Podcast. Here's the lecture. Enjoy it. All right, great. Well, let's go ahead and just jump right in, I guess. Tonight, the main topic, as, as you probably noticed, is uh, we're going to be talking about being, the axioms, and then what one philosopher calls the great turnaround, which I hope to get into in, in some detail. So just, just to review briefly some of the things that we talked about last time, you'll remember that in, in covering some of the chapters in book one and in book two of the metaphysics, we saw Aristotle just lay out a step-by-step step that it belongs to this great science that we're, that we're engaged in, metaphysics, also known as wisdom, to study the highest, the first principles and causes of all reality. And we even saw Aristotle show us by way of demonstration, I think, that there do exist first principles and causes, right? He established the reality of at least 
one first principle and cause in each of the four genera of, of causes, material cause, formal cause, efficient cause, and final cause. So we, we kind of got off to a good start, hopefully uh, seeing that, that wisdom is really about those first principles and causes. And I think that's, that's certainly something we want to keep in mind tonight. Why? Because uh, in the material we're going to cover tonight, we're going to see that Aristotle will add to what we, we established last time by showing us that in addition to studying the first principles and causes of all reality, it belongs to the wise man, that is to say the metaphysician, to study being insofar as it's being, as well as to study the axioms. He's going to establish both of those things. And without further ado, I really want to, to get at uh, his, his establishment of those two facts. Let me just go ahead and read chapter one from book four. It's only a paragraph. But I think here we'll see that Aristotle gets at something really, really important. In as being, and the attributes which belong to this in virtue of its own nature. Now, this is not the same as any of the so-called special sciences, for none of these others treats universally of being as being. They cut off a part of being and investigate the attribute of this part. This is what the mathematical science sciences, for instance, do. Now, since we are seeking the first principles and the highest causes, clearly there must be something to which these belong in virtue of its own nature. If then, those who sought the elements of existing things were seeking these same principles, there he's referring to the pre-Socratics, it is necessary that the elements must be elements of being, not by accident, but just because it is being. Therefore, it is of being as being that we also must grasp the first causes. Okay, so Aristotle is doing, it seems to me, a, a couple really important things in this very short chapter. First, he's, he's contrasting metaphysics, the science of metaphysics, with, with the other sciences, those sciences that he refers to as, as the special sciences, huh? or you might say the, the more specific sciences in some way. He says, if you look at what this, the so-called special sciences do, and he gives us an example, uh, say the science of mathematics, he says the special sciences, what they do is they, they take one part, so to speak, of, of being, and they investigate it. If we think of geometry, okay, well, geometry studies what we might call quantified being, okay? It, it studies quantified being, or... Uh, it studies, you might say, uh, dimensive quantity. That'd be another way of putting it, right? In, in geometry, you study things like triangles and circles, squares, their properties. You even have uh, three-dimensional quantities that you study. So, for example, in solid geometry, you study things like spheres, cubes, pyramids, and their properties. But still, in either case, you're studying various dimensions and their and their properties, okay? So you're only studying one part, so to speak, of being. You might say that something similar is going on 
in natural philosophy. So in natural philosophy, we study mobile being, okay? But mobile being isn't all that there is, okay? There are also out there created beings that aren't subject to generation, corruption, or the various sorts of motions that mobile beings are subject to. I'm thinking here of, of things like the, the separated human soul, even of angels, okay? They're purely spiritual substances, they're creatures, but they're not, they're not properly studied as the subject of natural philosophy, mobile being. Okay, so we can see that the special sciences, they each cut off a part, so to speak, of being, and they study it, they study its properties. Aristotle tells us by contrast in metaphysics, we study not just this part or that part of being, but we study being insofar as it is being. And we're going to have to see exactly what that means when he says being is being. Well, what exactly does he mean? That's something he's going to bring up and clarify in the very next chapter. Okay, but for the time being, we can see very clearly that metaphysics has a, a much more, you might say, all-encompassing or a much more universal subject matter than do any of the other sciences. And by the way, uh, Aristotle is is establishing, I think, in this chapter, chapter one of book four, that being as being, being insofar as it's being, is the very subject matter of the science of, of, of metaphysics, okay? So you could compare this, the subject of, of this science to the subject, again, of something like natural philosophy. The subject of natural philosophy is mobile being insofar as it's mobile being, or changeable substance insofar as it's changeable substance. That's another way of putting it. Here in metaphysics, okay, it's being insofar as it is being, that's the subject matter of our science. And it's interesting because, because uh, Aristotle seems to point out that there's, there's a sort of intrinsic or essential connection between studying the first principles and causes of all reality and studying being insofar as it's being. What does that connection consist in? Well, maybe we can, we can get at that by, again, comparing what, what we do in metaphysics to what we do in a science that's more familiar to us, something like natural philosophy or, or mathematics, perhaps. Let's take natural philosophy. I'm assuming that, that at least a number of you guys are familiar with Aristotle's physics or Aristotle's natural philosophy and, and St. Thomas's natural philosophy as well, which just really builds on uh, Aristotle's and is not really different from Aristotle's. Well, if we think back to what Aristotle does in, in the physics, for example, uh, what, what he does is this. He, he gives us the subject matter of the science. Again, it's mobile being or, ch or changeable substance. And in the course of, of the science of natural philosophy, Aristotle, Aristotle demonstrates that certain properties belong to his subject matter, mobile being, he also investigates the principles of his subject matter. So in book one, for example, of the physics, Aristotle spends almost that entire book asking and answering the question, what are the, the intrinsic causes that make up mobile being? 
and he shows that those are none other than substantial form and first matter or prime matter. Okay, so in addition to looking at the properties of a subject matter, Aristotle investigates the causes of a subject matter. And he not only looks at the intrinsic causes of his subject matter, he also asks about the extrinsic causes of his subject matter. So later on in the physics, say in books seven and eight, for example, Aristotle asks the question and answers the question, what is the first efficient cause of mobile being and of motion? Well, he answers that question by demonstrating that there exists a first efficient cause of mobile being and of motion. And that first efficient cause of those things is itself neither a mobile being nor something that is capable of motion. This is what we know as the first mover that is not a natural being, not capable of motion, sometimes called the, the first unmoved mover, huh? otherwise known as God. So we actually demonstrate the existence of God from within natural philosophy. But if, if you remember how Aristotle ends his physics at the end of book eight, he, he basically points out that this first efficient cause of mobile being and, and motion is, is something that is not subject to motion. It can't be subject to motion, so it's utterly immobile. Nor is, it, nor is it something that has any quantity whatsoever or dimension whatsoever. So in showing that, he's basically shown that this first efficient cause is not a mobile being. It's not a mobile being. It's something other than a natural thing. So he gives us a certain amount of negative knowledge, if you, if you will, of, of God, of what God is, right? And then that's the end of that part of the science of natural philosophy. So natural philosophy can't say all that much about God, okay? It can establish that he exists, that he's not a natural thing, that he's not, a, that is to say, not a, a mobile substance. And then that's about it, okay? Why can natural philosophy establish so little about God? Well, in large part, it has to do with, with the fact that the subject matter of the science of natural philosophy is, is rather limited or confined, okay? That subject matter, again, is just mobile being. And so, so all of the reasoning that, that we're able to do about God from within natural philosophy takes its origin from our knowledge of, of mobile being. And so we can show that God exists. We can show that he's not a mobile being, but that's about it. Okay. In metaphysics, by contrast, our subject matter, being as being, is way more universal than mobile being, which is just a part of being insofar as it's being. So with this wider or more universal, more all-encompassing subject matter that we start from, when we reason to the extrinsic cause or causes of the subject matter, we ask the question, what is the first efficient cause of, of being insofar as it's being? Well, guess what? We're going to arrive at God's existence. And when we investigate the nature of God, starting from 
being as being, as our subject matter, uh, of which God is the cause, we're going to be able to get a lot more knowledge, especially positive knowledge, about what God is. Okay? Why is that? Again, it has to do with the subject matter that we're starting with. It's way more universal. And so we'll be able to get a lot more mileage out of it, so to speak, in terms of knowing God, or as far as knowing God goes. Okay, so there really is a, a, a kind of essential connection within the science and metaphysics between, on the one hand, the subject matter that we're starting with, which Aristotle has just made known to us in uh, book four, chapter one, and the knowledge that we'll have of the first principle and cause of that subject matter, God, okay, the first uh, efficient cause of that subject matter when we get there. So hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. I think that's another thing that Aristotle is really trying to uh, lay out for us here in this very short chapter. He's doing it uh, very briefly. He's speaking brevitaire, if you will, which is characteristic of the wise man. He's able to say many, many things in just a few words. Can contrast how many words it took me to say all that with the amount of words that it took Aristotle to say all that. There's a, a big difference there. Okay. Now, if if we move on to, to chapter two of, of, book, of book four, Aristotle himself seems to raise an important objection uh, in, in that chapter. What is the objection? Well, maybe we can kind of put it this way. We're all familiar with Aristotle's 10 categories, I think, right? You have substance, and then you have nine different kinds or sorts of accidents, quantity, quality, relation, etc., etc. Okay. Well, keep in mind that the name being is said of each of those 10 categories. So you can say substance is being, quantities being, qualities being, relations being, actions being, etc., etc. Okay. Now, when you say being of each of those 10 categories, you have a different meaning in mind. So being one set of substance means one thing, being one set of quantity means another thing, and so on for all of the others. All right, keep that in mind, because here's, here's how the objection more or less goes. Okay, well, in chapter one of book four, we just established, Aristotle just established, that the very subject matter of our science, metaphysics, is being as being, right? Okay. Does that then mean that it belongs to the metaphysician to study the being that is substance, the being that's quantity, the being that's quality, the being that's relation, and so on for the other nine sorts of accents? Is that entailed by saying that our subject matter is being as being? Well, it would seem so. Now, if that's the case, and let's take it for granted that it is, what on earth is gonna prevent the science of metaphysics from falling apart into at least 10 different sciences? What's gonna do it? Well, that's a, that's a good question, right? And it might be a hard one to answer. Why would we think that 
metaphysics as a science would perhaps fall apart into 10 different sciences, at least 10 different sciences. Well, just, just think of this. If we focus for a second on one of those categories, let's say the category of quantity, well, Aristotle tells us that one way to divide quantity as a highest genus is you can divide it into what he calls continuous quantity and discrete quantity. Under continuous quantity, you find you find what he calls dimensive quantity, okay? Different dimensions, one dimension, uh, two-dimensional objects, three-dimensional objects. Under discrete quantity, one of the sorts of discrete quantity is number, right? Now, if we think of the mathematical sciences, geometry is one mathematical science. The study of numbers is another mathematical science that's distinct from geometry. Why do we say these are distinct sciences? Well, because they have distinct subject matters, right? In geometry, you study dimensive quantity and its properties. In the study of numbers, you study a certain sort of discrete quantity and the properties of those. Since, di since dimensive quantity and numbers are distinct sorts of quantity, we can't have one science of both of them. Okay, but they're divided into two distinct sciences. Well, that difference, the difference between dimensive quantity and, and numbers is a smaller difference, if you will, than the difference between substance on the one hand and quantity on the other, or, or it's a smaller difference than the difference between quantity on the one hand and quality on the other. Okay, so... So if the difference between dimensive quantity and numbers is enough to cause us to have two different sciences, well then all the more so should the difference between substance and quantity and quality and all the other categories be enough to cause us to have 10, at least 10 different sciences. So it seems like there's nothing to prevent metaphysics from just falling apart into a whole bunch of different sciences, right? That's the objection that Aristotle raises. How does he answer it? How does he show that metaphysics can study all those things and still be one? Well, let me go to the text again. I'm going to read a snippet from, from chapter 2 of book 4. Here's what Aristotle says. There are many senses in which a thing may be said to be. So he's granting... He's granting something to the objection that, yeah, indeed, the name being has many distinct meanings, right? When it's said of substance, it has one meaning. When it's said of quantity, it has another, and so on. It does have many distinct meanings. We have to grant that. That's the truth of the matter. But notice what he says next. He says, but all that is, all that exists, is related to one central point one definite kind of thing, and is not said to be by a mere ambiguity. So he's saying, even though being is said of many things with many different meanings in mind, the name being is said of them according to a certain order. That seems to be what he's getting at. And he gives us, he gives us a couple similar cases of other names which are said in a similar way. He says, everything which is healthy is related to health. One thing in the sense that it preserves health, 
another in the sense that it produces it, another in the sense that it is a symptom of health, another because it is capable of it. And that which is medical is relative to the medical art. One thing being called medical because it possesses it, another because it is naturally adapted to it, another because it is a function of the medical art. And we shall find other words used similarly to these. Okay, so he's saying, you know, think of these other words, these other names, like healthy or like medical. They're said of many things with many different meanings in mind. Take healthy just for a second, right? You might say, you might say Fido, the dog, okay, he's healthy. You might also say that, that Fido's, sorry, Fido's, uh, his dog food is healthy. Well, when you say healthy of Fido and of his dog food, you have two different meanings in mind, right? When you say Fido is healthy, you mean Fido is the subject of the quality that we call health. When you say his dog food is healthy, you don't mean to say that his dog food is the subject of the quality that we call health. No, you mean to say his dog food is the kind of stuff that can, that can preserve the quality of health in a living being like Fido, okay? So you mean something different. And something similar is true regarding this term medical. So if we, if we go to a hospital, right? You can say the hospital is a medical building. Why is it called medical? Well, because the art of medicine is practiced in it, within it, right? Uh, and then if we go inside the hospital, we could say, oh, well, there's, there's a, a medical machine, say an x-ray machine, right? Or, or there's, uh, you know, the pharmacy. And in the pharmacy, they have all these drugs that we could call medical in one sense or another, right? And then if you look at the doctor walking down the hall, you say, well, there's a medical man, so medical is said of all these different things, of the machine, of, of the drugs, of the man. But all these things are called medical with reference to something one, namely the medical art. So the man is called medical because he possesses in his soul the art of medicine. The machine is called medical because it is an instrument used by the man who has the medical art within himself uh, to promote health or to bring about health perhaps in in his patient. And then something similar can be said regarding drugs or medicine, right? They're called, they're called medical because they themselves are a cause of, of health that the man who has the medical art uh, utilizes and so on. Okay, so again, we see that there's a similarity between these, these names, the way in which these names are said, being on the one hand of, of the, the 10 categories, healthy, as it said of many things, medical, as it said of many things. And so Aristotle then, he draws, he draws uh, an insight from these comparisons. He says, so too, there are many senses or many meanings in which a thing is said to be, but all refer to one starting point. Some things are said to be because they are substances. Others, because they are affections or qualities of substance. Others, because they are a process towards substance or destructions or privations or, or qualities of substance or productive or generative or of substance. 
or of things which are relative to substance, or negations, or of one of these things, or of substance itself. Okay, so here Aristotle is saying that that being, even though that name is said of many things, it's said of substance first, and then it's said of quantity, of quality, and of all of the other categories, all of the other sorts of accidental categories, in as much as each of them is in one way or another related back to substance. And he even says that you can call things like generations and corruptions and movements. You can even call privations or non-beings. You can call all of those things being in one way or another, you know, this sort of being or that sort of being, but they're all called being ultimately with reference back uh, to substance. Okay, so how does this help us? Well, I think it helps us in this way, that when we say that the metaphysician's subject matter is being insofar as it's being, what that primarily means is this, that the metaphysician studies first and foremost what we might call created substance insofar as it is created substance, okay? So that's what being as being primarily means. Again, created substance insofar as it's created substance. Does, does that mean that in studying being as being, the metaphysician will not study quantity, quality, relation, movements, generations, etc.? No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that he'll only study those other things in as much as they stand to substance, to created substance in one way or another, maybe as accidents of it or as ways in which it's it, ways in which it gets generated or corrupted or as negations of it or what have you. Okay. So, so by going through that sort of consideration, then it seems as if we can, we can see that metaphysics is really able to study being as being without falling apart into many, many different kinds of substance. So Aristotle hopefully has just successfully defended what you might call the unity of this great science of metaphysics. All right. So thus far we've seen by looking at chapters one and two of book four, that in addition to studying the first principles and causes of all reality, it belongs to the metaphysician to study being as being, which principally means, again, created substance insofar as it's created substance. Are there any other things that it belongs to the metaphysician to study? Well, Aristotle says yes. And in the very next chapter, he brings up yet another thing that the metaphysician uh, studies. He tells us that it belongs to the metaphysician to study what he calls uh, the axioms. Okay. Now you might ask the question, well, what is an axiom here? That, that term axiom has many meanings. So I think it's, it's helpful for us to just be all on the same page uh, with respect to Aristotle's meaning of the name axioms. Okay, I think one thing that we should note is, is this, that when Aristotle uses the, uses the term axiom, he doesn't mean an arbitrary assumption which one lays down. Sometimes axiom has, has that notion, right? You might say that there's this set of axioms that this person is proceeding from, 
and this other person has this other set of axioms that's totally different from the set that the first person uh, has. And in, in that sense of, of axiom, what seems to be going on is this guy, he kind of chooses some principles that he's going to take as his givens, and then he reasons from those. This other guy, he just he just chooses another set of givens, and he's going to reason from those. So there, uh, the notion of axiom has, or it sort of means or includes within itself, a kind of arbitrary assumption, which one lays down, from which one reasons. That's not what Aristotle has in mind here. Rather, he's thinking of an axiom as a particular kind of self-evident statement. And for the time being, let's just say this, that a self-evident statement is one which we understand to be true as soon as we understand the meanings of the names or the words that are involved in that statement. So one of the classic examples would be something like, uh, every whole is greater than any one of its parts. Okay, that's one of the axioms that Euclid uses in, in the elements. Every whole is greater than any one of its parts. Well, as soon as we, as soon as we hear that statement and we understand what whole means, what part means, what greater than means, we say, oh yeah, that's obvious. Every whole is greater than any one of its parts. You know, think of a, an example. You have the whole pizza, take any slice of the pizza that you want, no matter how big that slice is, as long as it's a slice, the whole pizza is bigger uh, than any one of its parts, right? So as soon as we understand the meanings of the names of that statement, we say, oh, I understand that to be true. Yeah, that, that statement is necessarily true. So an axiom is a particular kind of self-evident statement. That is to say that that every axiom is a self-evident statement, but not every self-evident statement is an axiom. What are some examples of self-evident statements that aren't axioms? Well, maybe think of, of this one. Uh, no even number is an odd number. No even number is an odd number. That's the self-evident statement, right? As soon as we understand uh, what even number is and what odd number is, what those terms mean, we say, well, guess what? No even number can ever be an odd number. So that's a self-evident statement. Okay, so what is it that distinguishes an axiom from just some sort of run-of-the-mill self-evident statement like no even number is an odd number? Well, I think we have to add these further uh, notes. We have to say axioms are self-evident statements that are known to everyone and they are employed in multiple disciplines or multiple sciences. The, the statement that says no even number is an odd number, that might not be known uh, to everyone because perhaps not everyone knows what an even number is and what an odd number is, right? When, when kids are, are young, before they've started mathematics, even while they can, even, uh, while they can count or after they've learned to count, they, they know something about numbers but they don't yet know what, which numbers are even, which numbers are odd, or what those terms mean. So, so they can know a decent amount about numbers, but yet still not know that self-evident statement yet because they don't understand the terms involved. But even if everyone, let's say, does know that that statement, no even number is an odd number, is true, even if everyone does know it, it's still not an axiom because it's not employed in multiple sciences, okay? It's only used 
in the science that studies number num numbers. It's not used in geometry even, okay? And, and much less would it be used in something like natural philosophy, okay? But that other self-evident statement that I brought up earlier, every whole is greater than its part, that is an example of an axiom, okay? Everyone knows what whole and part mean. Those terms are extremely general. And everyone knows what greater than is or what less than is. So everyone can understand that axiom. That axiom or that self-evident statement, every whole is greater than its part, is known uh, to everyone. And it's employed in multiple disciplines. Okay? It's employed in geometry. It's employed in study of numbers. It's employed in natural philosophy. It's employed in many other sciences. Okay, so, so that's what we should have in mind when we think axiom here, or when we hear axiom here. Okay, an axiom is a self-evident statement that's known to everyone and which is utilized in multiple disciplines or multiple sciences. Okay, so given that meaning of axiom, how does Aristotle establish the conclusion that it belongs to the wise man to consider axioms? Well, I think he, he gives us basically a simple syllogism, uh, which goes something like this. He says that the study of axioms pertains to the science which considers being insofar as it's being. The reason is that the axioms apply to all things in some way. Okay, so the study of axioms pertains to the science which studies or considers being qua being, but the science which considers being insofar as it's being is what? Metaphysics. So therefore it follows that the study of the axioms pertains to metaphysics. All right, so that's pretty straightforward, hopefully. Uh, now, without going into uh, what I'm about to go into in a lot of detail, we can, we can come back to this in the second part of, of the course tonight, if you like. I just want to point out that that just because Aristotle has established that it belongs to the metaphysician to study the axioms, you shouldn't think that it follows from that, that the axioms aren't studied in some way or other in many of the other sciences. They indeed are. So for example, in, in logic, right? When you begin the doing of philosophy and you first study logic, well, it, it pertains to logic to, uh, to study the axioms to some extent. It pertains to logic to give a definition of axiom and to show how axioms are utilized within scientific demonstration. And then furthermore, as you proceed from one science to another, as, as you do the different sciences, mathematics, natural philosophy, moral science, etc., the sciences that come before metaphysics, well, each particular science more or less uses some dialectic in order to manifest the axioms that it's going to use. And each science can also answer certain objections which might be made against axioms, okay, from within this particular science or that particular science. Okay, so it pertains to the different sciences to study the axioms as well. Those things being said, it belongs to the wise man alone or to the metaphysician, metaphysician alone to distinguish and to order all of the axioms. 
Remember, we saw that the sixth mark of the wise man, we saw this last time, is to order things, right? Sapientis est ordinare. Well, one of the things that the wise man orders is the axioms, okay? He sees that there are many different axioms, and he orders all of them. It also belongs to him alone to determine what we might call the full universality of each axiom. So by considering the different meanings of the names that, that go into each axiom, he can show you just how universal each axiom is. He can show you how many different things each axiom applies to. Okay, uh, And it also belongs to the wise man to defend each axiom in its full universality should any objections be raised against it, uh, not just from within this science or that science, but just against the axiom as a whole. So, so what I'm trying to point out here is that even though the axioms get studied way prior to anyone doing metaphysics, the axioms are studied in a special way by the metaphysician. Okay. Hopefully that's, that's somewhat clear. Like I said, we can come back to that and look at particular examples if you guys would like to a little bit later. Okay, after having showed us that it belongs to the, uh, to the metaphysician to study the axioms, Aristotle does something really interesting in book four, chapter three. What is that? Well, as soon as he shows us that the wise man studies the axioms, guess what he starts to do? He starts to study the axioms. Does he, does he take up the study of being insofar as it's being? Well, he does so later. What about the study of the first principles and causes of all reality? Does Aristotle take that up? Yes, but later. In what order does he take up the study of the axioms, being insofar as it's being, and the first principles and causes of all reality? Well, in the order that I just mentioned them. So here's, so here's what's going on. If you look at the order in which Aristotle has established that the wise man studies the first principles and causes of, rea of reality, being insofar as it's being, and the axioms, he establishes that it belongs to the wise man to study those three things in that order that I just mentioned. First, he shows that it belongs to the wise man to study the first principles and causes of reality. Then he shows, secondly, that it belongs to the wise man to study being qua being. And thirdly, he shows that it belongs to the wise man to study the axioms. But when he actually gets on to the study of those three things, in what order does he study them? In exactly the reverse order. So first, he takes up the study of the axioms. Secondly, he studies being insofar as it's being. And third and finally, he studies the first principles and causes of all reality. Why does he study them in that order, going from the axioms to being qua being, and then last but not least, to the first principles and causes of reality? Well, it's because if you ask which of those things is more known to us and which of those things are less known to us, well, out of those three, the ones that are most known to us are the axioms. Next in order 
of being more known to us is being insofar as it's being, that is to say, created substance insofar as it's created substance, and least known to us out of those three are the first principles and causes of all reality, okay, such as God. So Aristotle is proceeding in the right order here in studying these things in the order that I stated, axioms, being, qua being, first principles and causes of reality. This, this chapter, uh, chapter three of book four, is the chapter that contains, according to one Thomist philosopher, Duane Berquist, the great turnaround. This is like the, the hinge in the metaphysics, because this is, this is the place in the text where he goes from establishing what the metaphysician is to study, to studying those very same three things, but in exactly the reverse order. Okay, so that's why it's called the great turnaround. Hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. So what are some of the things that Aristotle establishes regarding the axioms or teaches us regarding the axioms? Well, let me throw a, a few of them out there, starting in, in chapter three, book four, going on to uh, chapter four, are, are these. He, so he shows us or he manifests to us that the first of all of the axioms is the principle of non-contradiction. Okay, so he takes it for granted that, that we have done sciences prior to doing metaphysics. And so if that's so, then we know by experience that there are many axioms and that there's an order amongst them. And so it makes sense then for him to ask, okay, well, given those two things, that there are many axioms and that there's an order amongst the axioms, makes sense for him to ask, well, which of all of the axioms is first? If the axioms were like a kingdom, which of them would be king? Which of them would rule over all of the others? And what he does is he shows us, he manifests to us that the king of all of the axioms, the axiom that rules over all of the others, is none other than the principle of non-contradiction. And I, I think if we consider the matter carefully, we can see that it has to be that way. It can't be any other way. Some people will say, hey, there's another axiom that's prior to the principle of non-contradiction called the principle of, of identity, or they might propose other ones as, as, as prior to the principle of non-contradiction. But I think you can show that, no, the principle of non-contradiction has to be the first of all of them. Aristotle also shows us, uh, in particular in chapter four, how we can defend the principle of non-contradiction if against someone who might try to, to deny it in, in speech. So if someone says, hey, I think the principle of non-contradiction is false, well, there, there's a way to, to rebut that and to show that that, that can't be the case. Uh, also, Aristotle, I think, gives us some, some tips for how we can defend other axioms out there should someone deny them. We can show that, well, if they were to deny any other axiom, that ultimately involves a denial of the principle of non-contradiction, but you can't deny the principle of non-contradiction. Uh, and again, we can show why or what the consequences of that are. So anyways, those are some of the things that I think he establishes or, or, or shows us uh, as early as, as uh, chapter three and chapter four uh, of book four.
The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2021. Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.